Hey, good morning. You can go ahead and make your way in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5 as we continue our series uh, through the book of Ephesians. Uh, so if you were to audition for and uh, get the part, uh, be cast uh, for a role in the play uh, at the Cape Fear Theater, um, what would you need to play your part well? Obviously, one of the major things you would need to play your part well is the script, right? You need to have the script so that you can know your lines and know uh, what you were supposed to say and what you were supposed to do and be as this character. If you uh, didn't have the script and you just had to improv everything about your character, it would be really difficult to play your part well because uh, you really wouldn't know the first thing about what this character is like or what they might say in this scenario or what they might do. You'd be completely left up to your own, but a, a script provides you with lanes to run in. It gives you um, info about what this character is supposed to do and be. It helps you know what your role should look like and what you should be doing to be able to play your part well. Well, in a lot of ways, Ephesians 5 is like a script that God gives us so we know how to live our Christian lives well, so that we can play our part uh, in His grand plan well. The book of Ephesians has laid out God's plan. It's laid out the drama of salvation, how God's big plan for the world is to unite all things in Jesus. And God has chosen and adopted and redeemed and rescued and forgiven and saved us and has made us new creations. And starting in chapter 4, Ephesians has begun to describe what it looks like for us to live as new creations, what it looks like to walk uh, in this new life that God has created in us through the gospel, in, in God's plan, in the drama of salvation. We've been given the role of bearing witness to His power uh, and His power through the gospel to transform us and make us new. And we're not left to just improv this new life that Jesus has created in us. Now, Ephesians 5 is part of the script God gives us so that we can know our lines, so that we can know our roles, so that we can know how to play our part well. What does it look like to live the Christian life? Well, Ephesians 5 tells us we live out the new life we have in Jesus by walking in love, walking in light, and walking in wisdom. And so let's see this together in the text. Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to read the first 21 verses Starting in verse 1, the word of God to us today. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. 
For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray for God's help uh, on our time together this morning. God, would you, would you help us this morning as we come to your word? Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that you haven't just left it up to us to try to figure out what you call us to do and be. Thank you that you've given us lanes to walk in. God, would you help us as we look at this passage? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Would you help us to believe the good news that the power and promise of the gospel is not just that you can forgive us, but you can change us and that we really can walk in love and light and in wisdom? God, give us grace as we walk through this passage. Enlighten our hearts, enlighten our eyes. Help us to be a church that walks in what you call us to walk in here. I pray that you would in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, the text is structured around three walks, and you see it pretty clearly in the passage. Verse 2, Paul calls us to walk in love. Verse 8, he calls us to walk as children of light. And verse 15, he tells us to look carefully then how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So we're called to walk in love and in light and in wisdom. And so let's think first about what it means to walk in love. And Paul begins chapter 5 by pointing us back to the end of chapter 4 with the word therefore. Uh, the end of chapter 4 said that we're to be kind towards each other, tender-hearted towards one another, forgiving each other as God in Christ has forgiven us. Paul continues this thought in verse 1 by saying that we should be imitators of God. We should be imitators of God in the way that He is kind towards us, and He forgives us, and He is tender-hearted towards us. And so, he calls us to imitate God, and he calls us to do that as beloved children. Uh, one of the things I've realized as I've gotten older is that I am my dad's son through and through. Um, my parents were here a few weeks ago, and some of you even pointed this out. Uh, my dad and I look the same, and what I've noticed lately is that we talk the same. We have the same cadence and patterns of speech. We have so many of the same habits and mannerisms. Uh, just like him, I think dad jokes that are objectively not funny, I, I think they are hilarious, and I, I just, even if I tried, I would not be able to avoid imitating him. We're just too similar. Now, I don't imitate my dad to become his child. I, I imitate my dad because I already am his child, because I shared the same DNA and lived in the same house uh, for 18 years with him. And that's what Paul is calling us to here. He is calling us to imitate God, not to become God's children, but because we already are God's children. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have the power to imitate God because you are 
God's child. You share his DNA, as it were. You are in the family, and God has sent his Holy Spirit, God himself, to live inside of you and empower you to live as one of his children. And so like a child who follows the example of what their parents do, we're called to imitate the example that God the Father has laid out for us. And the gospel is where we get both the pattern and the power to be able to do this. We see this at the end of chapter 4. We're to forgive each other just as, in the same way, just like God in Christ has forgiven us. And then you see it here again in verse 2. We're to walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us. That means that the gospel is both the pattern and the power. It's the framework and the fuel for how we love and forgive others, for how we imitate God in this. The gospel is the pattern. What does it look like to love and forgive others? Well, it looks like doing to them what God has done with us, the way he's loved and forgiven us. God loves and forgives us even though we don't deserve it. And he loves us in a way that is selfless and sacrificial and costly. He gives of himself and sacrifices himself so that we can be built up, so that we can flourish, so that we can be served. That's how we're called to love and forgive others. And so the gospel gives us the pattern for how we do this, but it doesn't just give us the pattern, it also gives us the power. The gospel is where you find the power to be able to love and forgive others. Because God made you to know and love and be in a relationship with him, but every single one of us rejected that. And so we were sinners who had done nothing our entire lives but rebel against God. You did not love him. You did not honor him as God. You did not think he was God. You thought you would do a better job of being God of your life than he would, and so you tried to be the God of your life and run your own life. You did what you wanted to do and what made you happy, whether that looked like a lifestyle of blatant sin or it looked like a lifestyle of trying to be a morally good person so that you could take that goodness and put it on the scales and put God in your debt and force him to have to let you into heaven. You you may have used God to get what you want, but you didn't actually love God for who he is. It, looked, it played out in different behavior for all of us, but all of us lived lives characterized by rebellion against God, and that earned God's just judgment. God would have been right to judge us and send us to hell, separated from him for all of eternity for the ways that we had rebelled against him. But instead of rightly judging us for our sin and bringing his wrath upon us, God forgave us. Out of love for us, God came to earth in the person of Jesus, and Jesus lived the perfect human life that you and I have not lived, always faithful to God. And then he went to the cross and died a death to pay the debt for our sin that we should have died so that he could forgive us. He took the judgment of God for our sins And after dying a death in our place to pay the debt for our sins, he rose from the dead so that he could forgive us and give us new life with him forever. And he did all of that before we ever loved him, before we ever earned it or deserved it, before we ever even turned to him or tried to clean ourselves up. 
God loved and forgave, uh, forgave us before we earned or deserve it, and that's where you find the power to be able to love and forgive others in the church who do not deserve it. Listen, forgiveness is always a gift that you give to someone else who does not deserve it. If you refuse to forgive someone until they earn it back and work off the way that they sinned against you, it's not forgiveness anymore. You're just giving them what you owe them. And forgiveness is costly. When you forgive someone, you bear and absorb the cost of the way that they sinned against you. And the only way you're going to have the power to do that with others is when the most foundational reality of your heart is that you've been loved and forgiven by God of a much greater debt when you absolutely did not deserve it. Without the gospel empowering you, you will have to get revenge. You will have to make them pay, or you'll grow bitter towards this person, but you won't be able to forgive them. You probably won't even need to feel the need to forgive them because your need for forgiveness and the forgiveness you've received from Jesus isn't the deepest reality in your heart. You'll think, well, I've earned everything I've gotten, so why shouldn't they have to do the same thing as well? And unless your heart is resting in and rejoicing in the truth that God loves you selflessly and sacrificially and, and still loves you now even when you do not deserve it, you're never going to be able to sacrifice yourself or inconvenience yourself or get outside of yourself to love and serve others in the church who may or may not deserve it. Again, you probably won't even feel the need to be selfless and loving and sacrificial towards others because your need for and your experience of the love and grace of Jesus isn't the most motivating reality in your heart. And so we live out our new lives in Jesus, first by walking in love with one another, and we get the power to do that by resting in the love and grace that, that God has first shown towards us. But that's not all that we're called to do. Those aren't the only lines in the script. God doesn't just call us to walk in love. He also calls us to walk in light. And Paul gives us the, the main point of this section of the passage with his command in verse 8. Look at it again. It says, because God has made us light, because we are now light in the Lord, we should now walk as children of light. We should be what we already are in Jesus. And so here in verses 3 through 14, Paul's going to explain what darkness and light looks like so that we can walk as children of light. And he begins here in verse 3 by describing uh, what the darkness looks like. He says sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness should not even be named among us. And look at the reason that he gives for why it shouldn't even be named among us in verse 3. He says shouldn't be named among us as is proper among saints. Saints are holy people, and what the New Testament teaches is that every follower of Jesus is a saint. When Jesus saves you, he makes you a saint. You become a holy person. Holiness means being taken out of the realm of the common and being set apart for a specific use, being devoted to God. And so when Jesus saves you, God does that. He cleanses you, and he sets you apart for his purposes. He makes you holy. He devotes you to himself. He makes you a saint. And because you are a saint, because we've been set apart for God for his use and for his purposes, sexual immorality and purity, it's not proper. 
It's not fitting for someone who has been set apart to live for God. I mean, just like what Paul says about filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking in verse 4, all of these things are out of place in the life of a Christian. It's out of place for people that God has made saints. It'd be like showing up to a black tie formal in a Halloween costume. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. It's completely out of place. And look at the high bar that Paul sets here. He says immorality should not even be named among us, and there should be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking, none at all. Like when we get around brothers and sisters in the church, it should be a place where off-color jokes and filthiness and crude joking uh, just it isn't found there. It's out of place where it just doesn't happen among us. Now, listen, obviously, this is not saying that Christians can't laugh or joke or have fun, but it, but it is clearly forbidding crude joking. And so how do we know when joking becomes crude joking and when it crosses the line into something that Paul says should have no place in God's church. Well, good news, the passage tells us, uh, verse 4 says there should be none of this, it's out of place, instead there should be thanksgiving. Sex, in the context of where it's supposed to be, where God has designed it to be, in a committed covenant marriage between a one man and one woman, it's an incredibly powerful gift that God uses to draw spouses closer together and unite them as one flesh and renew and deepen that covenant and express their love towards one another. But instead of treating sex like the powerful gift that it is, sexual immorality and crude joking treats sex like a light thing, like it's really not a big deal, like sin in this area is really not something to worry about. It mocks God's gift in the way that it jokes about it and devalues it. It doesn't act like sexual immorality is a sin that devastates you and everyone around you. But when you're thankful for and you realize how powerful God's gift of sex is, you won't be mocking it or treating it lightly, whether you're married or you're single. If you do mock it, if you do treat it lightly, if you do start to see sexual immorality is not that big of a deal, that's how you know you're engaging in crude joking. And, and again, Paul says there should be no crude joking. There's just no place for it in the life of a Christian. And this is convicting because men especially, and how easy it is, is it for us to get in a group where one guy tells a joke that's, that's maybe a little bit borderline and he gets a laugh and so... Uh, somebody else goes a little bit further, and he gets a laugh, and then you go even further off color, and, and you get a laugh, and now everybody in the group is laughing at something that God hates. Now, it's been convicting for me because I've just thought about how many times I've sinned in this area because I just wanted to get a laugh. At the times I've sinned in this area because I just wanted people to look at me like I was funny. But Ephesians 5 is telling us that if you have to choose, and it's it's better to be godly than to be funny. It is better to walk in holiness and honor God than to get a laugh at something that God hates. And so, look, I, I can't tell you from this text, this text means that, that you, you're free to watch this, you shouldn't watch this, don't listen to that. What I can tell you is that you need to be a good student of your own heart and listen to your own conscience. Is this show you're watching causing you to treat God's gift of sex lightly? 
Is it causing you to laugh about and joke about and devalue and joke about things that God hates? Do you find yourself being stirred up towards lust and fantasizing sexually after watching it? Do you find yourself talking in a way that can be characterized as filthy and crude the more that you watch or listen to it? And if so, it's wise for you to consider giving that up so that you can pursue holiness in this area. Because look at what verse 5 says. He says, you can be sure of this, you can take this to the bank, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. None. Real simply, what that means is that you will not go to heaven. You will not experience life with God. The sexually immoral have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And so what is sexual immorality? Well, the word used here for sexual immorality covers all sexual activity outside of the context of a covenant marriage between one man and one woman. Looking at pornography is sexual immorality. Sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend is sexual immorality. Homosexual sexual activity, whether you would claim to be married or committed to this one person, is sexual immorality. Lust, sexually fantasizing about someone, is sexual immorality. And Paul knows what the temptation will be for us. Look at verse 6. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Paul knows that everything in our culture and in our world is going to be working overtime to convince you that, that sexual immorality is not a big deal, that everybody does a little bit of it. I mean, yeah, you should eventually stop looking at porn, but at least you're not actually going out and committing adultery. I mean, you guys are committed to one another. Why do you need a piece of paper to prove that? Uh, you, you, love is love. Nobody gets to tell you who you can love. But all of that is empty words. It's foolish lies. I mean, look at what the passage says. It says the wrath of God is coming upon people for these things, for the sins of sexual immorality. The Word of God is telling you here that if you walk in unrepentant sexual immorality, you will face the wrath of God. You will go to hell for it. Look, if you're looking at pornography and there's no fight, there's no struggle, there's no desire to change, there's no steps... To, to put that sin to death, you are going to go to hell for that. If you're sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and saying, well, of course we're going to get married someday, you're putting yourself on a collision course for hell. If you're engaging in homosexual sexual activity, again, whether or not you would claim to be married or committed to this one person, if you don't repent of that, you will go to hell. If you are constantly and unrepentantly engaging in lust, I'm not just talking about finding somebody else attractive, I'm talking about sexually fantasizing about other people, and there's no struggle to change, there's no fight to stop that, and your justification is, well, I can look as long as I don't touch, I can window shop as long as I don't buy anything, you will go to hell for that. Like the, the Word of God is clear here, and we need to sit with this because like the passage says, everything in our world is trying to convince you that God's Word is not really true and the threat of His judgment is not really real. 
But whether you claim to be a follower of Jesus or not, if these sins characterize your life and there's no repentance, there's no struggle, there's no fight to change, you don't even really see it as wrong, the Bible is telling you you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You are not saved. You are not a Christian. But but here's the good news. You can be. Jesus came and lived a life of perfect faithfulness. He was never sexually immoral. He was never impure. He was never covetous. And he died for the sexually immoral, for porn addicts, for homosexuals, for adulterers, for those who have absolutely blown it in this area of their lives. He absorbed the wrath of God, the judgment of God for the sins of his people so that anybody... And that includes you. Anybody who would turn from their sin and turn to him and put their trust in him could experience having all of your sins forgiven and being made right with God forever. Jesus can take all of your sins and exchange them for his righteousness. He will take all of your sins on himself and pay for them on the cross And in return, he will give you his life of faithfulness as a gift so that you are forever acceptable to God. This warning is here in Ephesians 5 so that if this is what you're walking in, you'd wake up and repent and come back to Jesus and be saved from the wrath of God. And please don't stay in your sin and rebellion if this describes you. Please Come to Jesus and experience the power of His grace to forgive you of all of your sins and power to transform you so that you don't have to walk in them anymore. Because this power, this hope for the power to change, this is what Paul uh, draws on here. Because look at where he goes next in verse 7. He says, Because the sexually immoral have no part in the kingdom, don't become partners with them. Don't keep participating in their immoral behavior. You used to be darkness like them, but now you are light in the Lord. And when it says, now you are light in the Lord, what tense is the word are? It's present. That means it's right now. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are right now light in the Lord. God has turned on the lights in your life. He's brought you out of darkness. The passage is saying he's literally made you light. And because that's true, he now commands us to walk as children of light. And this is the New Testament's teaching on the Christian life. The New Testament's teaching on the Christian life is to be what you are. It's to be what you already are in Jesus and what Jesus has made you. God has made you holy. He's declared you righteous. So now you walk in holiness and righteousness. God has made you light. He's taken you out of the darkness So now you walk as a child of the light. And Paul is saying because you have changed, your lifestyle and your behavior should change as well. You are not the same person anymore, and your life should increasingly reflect that. And he shows us how this is supposed to play out. Verse 9 says, The fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. How do you know you're walking in the light? You start bearing the fruit of being light. More and more, goodness and truth and righteousness characterize your life instead of sexual immorality and filthiness and foolishness and crude joking. More and more, your life is marked by 
instead of selfishness, a growing concern for others, a growing concern to know what God says in His Word, and a growing concern to obey what God says in His Word and to walk in the truth that He gives us. Paul tells us we should also try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And when he says that, he's not saying we should test different stuff out to see if it's really sin or not. He's saying we should be uh, trying to figure out what goodness and righteousness and truth and light looks like in the different situations of our lives. He's saying we should be using wisdom to determine how best to please God in the situations and circumstances that come up in our daily lives. And he circles back in verse 11 and shows us that walking in the light means we don't take part in the works of darkness. Instead, we expose them. And here he's talking about specifically about exposing the sin of other brothers and sisters in the church. There's nowhere in the Bible that calls us to aggressively expose the sins of unbelievers, like Paul is calling us to expose the sins of our brothers and sisters here. Uh, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says that we are only to judge insiders in the church. God judges those who are outside of the church. On top of that, verse 12, Paul says it's shameful to even talk about the things that they do in secret. Um, now, uh, but the, the passage gives us every reason to believe that Paul is still talking about sexual immorality here. And by and large, Unbelievers do not feel a lot of shame over their sexual immorality and do not make a lot of effort to hide it. Uh, only Christians do that. Only Christians keep their immorality in secret because they know they're doing something wrong. They know they should try to hide it. Yeah, I just haven't met the Christian who feels no shame in bragging about how many people they've slept with. I just have not met the professing Christian who will talk about their porn addiction with their coworkers. Uh, in the same tone that they talk about what they had for lunch. Like, it's just no big deal. It's something everybody does, and it's not uh, something that's even sinful. But I have met unbelievers who do that. Now, as Christians, by and large, we feel shame about the things we are doing that we know are dark, and so we hide. I mean, have you ever thought about, if you're struggling with habitual sexual sin, have you ever thought about how often you try to hide and you don't confess and you don't tell anybody else about that so that you can defeat that sin struggle on your own uh, so that when you have defeated that sin struggle on your own, then you can come and tell people, yeah, I used to struggle with that, but I don't struggle with that anymore. See, we, we all from time to time fall back into unfruitful works of darkness and we hide. And so we're called to help each other in the church step back into the light and walk out of the darkness. This is what verse 13 is saying when it says, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. What that means is that when we expose each other's sin and bring it into the light, that's a grace that God uses to wake that Christian up and help them start living in line with who they are as a child of the light. I mean, look, I know we just don't think this way, but the Bible does. It is loving to confront the sin of a brother or sister in the church. It is loving to say to somebody else in the church, hey, that's not who you are anymore. You don't have to keep walking in this. I will help you fight against this. I will help you drag this into the light. What have we got to do so that you can experience freedom in this area? It is loving to say, brother, sister, I'm sorry, that's sin. 
And you need to repent. You need to stop walking in it. We have committed to help each other follow Jesus in membership because we're members of the same body. And because we are still sinners, some of that help is going to look like exposing each other's sin that we're even maybe have deceived ourselves about and we're hiding even from ourselves so that brothers and sisters in the church do not fall back into the darkness, do not turn away from walking with Jesus. This is the hope Paul concludes this section of the passage with when he jams together a bunch of different passages from Isaiah and says, this is why it says, wake up, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Us helping each other bring sin into the light helps us wake up when we're not seeing straight and come back to Jesus. Jesus shines his light on us, and we change. We start walking in holiness again. So listen, you should hear this section of the passage, and if you are a Christian, you should want this to describe you. You really can know a life free from the chains of pornography, sexual immorality, and lust. Paul is not just expressing a future hope that when we get to heaven, we won't struggle with these things and we won't sin in these ways anymore. No, he's talking about right now. Right now, you are, a, you are light and you have the power to walk as a child of the light. Right now, we have the power to not even have a hint of sexual immorality or impurity among us. Does that mean you're never going to stumble or fall back into sin again? No, of course not. But, but think of the metaphor Paul uses here of walking. What's true about walking? It's about going a certain direction. It's not that you never take a step back or that you don't fall or, or uh, scrape your knee. It's that you get back up and you keep walking again. You keep moving forward. You don't stop and turn around and start walking back the other direction, back into the darkness. But look, there, there are some of you that I, just, I believe have just settled, have just settled for a life of believing that, yes, God can forgive you, but not that he has the power to change you. It's just not true. The, the hope of the gospel also includes the hope of sanctification, that we're free, we're not slaves to sin anymore, and we don't have to walk in it any longer, that we really can grow to look more and more like Jesus. You really are different. God has made you different. And so you should strive to be different, to walk in that difference, to be what you already are in Jesus. I don't know who originally said this, but it's true, that God's grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. God's grace is opposed to us earning, uh, thinking that we can earn our salvation or God's favor with our good works, but it is not opposed to effort. It is not opposed to us actively fighting against our sin and actively struggling to grow in Jesus because nobody drifts into holiness and godliness. Like some of us think we're just going to wake up one day and that habitual sin that we've struggled with, that, that we're just going to wake up one day and not have the desire to do it anymore. Some of us think that we're going to wake up one day and magically have this overwhelming desire to read our Bibles and pray and spend time with Jesus. But you don't just let go and let God and wake up one day having grown a ton in your love for Jesus. No, in the Christian life, we strive, we fight. We struggle. We get after it to go get more of Jesus. 
We actively fight to put our sin to death and follow after Jesus. This is what it means to live a new life in Jesus. This is part of the script that God has given us. We walk in the light because God has made us light, because he's made us children of the light. Third, we're also called by God to walk in wisdom. He he gives us the third walk here in verse 15 when he says, we should look carefully then at how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So we're, we're called to walk in wisdom. And he explains more of what that looks like, what it means to walk in wisdom by saying we should be making the best use of the time because the days are evil and that we shouldn't be foolish, but should understand what the will of the Lord is. When Paul says that we're to make the best use of the time, he's not talking about maximizing our productivity and efficiency. He's talking about living every moment of our lives for Jesus. Jesus has redeemed us. He set us free from wasting our lives on our sin. And so now we live in that freedom. We don't waste our life on ourselves. We don't waste our life on sinful pursuits that he's freed us from. We seek to use every moment of our lives to walk in faithfulness to Jesus and honor and obey Jesus. We recognize God's given us time as a gift to use in his service, so we're constantly looking for opportunities to use our time to honor and follow and grow in our love for Jesus. Look at where Paul goes next to describe what it means to walk in wisdom in verse 18. He says, Do not get drunk with wine, because that's debauchery. It's recklessness. It's a waste of time when we're supposed to be making the best use of our time. And if you needed a clear command, here it is. Don't get drunk. It is a sin to get drunk. And don't say, well, the passage says don't get drunk with wine. It doesn't say you can't get drunk with beer. No, the command is to not get drunk because being drunk, it's debauchery. It leads to recklessness. It puts you under the influence and out of control, and it's a waste of time. Instead, Paul says we're to be filled with the Spirit. We're to be controlled by and under the influence of the Spirit instead of alcohol. And this command to be filled with the Spirit, it's a command that's meant to be ongoing. We're to continually be being filled with the Spirit. We receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit the moment that we are saved, but we can reject the Holy Spirit's rule and influence and power in our lives. And so what Paul means by being filled with the Spirit here is giving the Spirit full control of your life, letting God the Spirit rule and influence you. I mean, think about the contrast here with wine and drunkenness that Paul uses. When someone's drunk, we say they're under the influence because they're being controlled by the alcohol. It's affecting what they do. God doesn't want you to be under the influence of anything else. Instead, we're to be under the influence of the Spirit, yielding ourselves to what the Spirit would have us do, saying yes to more and more of the Spirit's rule and power and influence in our lives. That's why it says, be filled, passive, instead of fill yourselves with the Spirit, active. As God, the Holy Spirit is sovereign. He does what He pleases, and none of us can force His hand. But we can put ourselves in the place to be receptive to His work and to His influence. And again, the good news is the passage tells us exactly how to do that, how to seek to put ourselves under His influence through the four commands that He gives here. We are to seek to be filled by the Spirit by addressing one another in song, 
by singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, by giving thanks always and for everything, and by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's not a mechanical process where if we do these four things, we'll guarantee spiritual growth. Again, if it was a mechanical process, the text would have said, fill yourselves with the Spirit instead of be filled by the Spirit. But, but these four things are ways that we put ourselves in the place to be under the influence of the Spirit, to have more of His rule and power uh, influence our lives. It's the ways we seek to be filled by the Spirit. And so let's look at them. First, it says we seek to be filled by the Spirit by addressing each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I don't think Paul intends for us to make real hard and fast distinctions between these three categories here. I, I think he's just saying that um, we are called to uh, sing songs that are either directly from God's Word or reflect the truth of God's Word. And notice here in the passage, who does he say that our singing is addressed to? Each other. Now, you may not know this about me, but I, I love um, metal music, uh, screamo, hardcore, whatever you want to call it, and really enjoy going to those concerts. They are just a blast. Uh, and I had not been to one of these concerts in over a decade, but one of my favorite bands was doing their 20-year uh, anniversary celebration tour, and so I uh, got to go to that concert back in May. Um, had to wear earplugs this time around, but still had a great time. And um, man, these, these concerts, like, it's an emotional experience for me. The the lights are down, the strobe lights are on, the fog machine is going, the music is cranked up so loud that you can't even hear yourself think. I mean, you just feel it in your chest. Your ears ring for days after the concert is over. And man, it's a blast. Like when I go, I'm fully engaged. I'm drawn in. I'm emotionally stirred up and moved. I have a great experience at these concerts. And, and to be honest, that sort of musical experience would be my preference on a Sunday morning where we've got the music turned up as loud as it will go and it's so loud that you just feel it in your chest and you can't hear, you can't even hear yourself think, much less hear yourself sing. Uh, and, and it's just so loud. Like I would have, I'd be emotionally stirred up and moved if that's what we did on a Sunday morning. And look, that really might be okay if our singing was just addressed to God. If what we were doing here on Sunday morning was just this really big devotional between you and God with a bunch of strangers and friends around you, but that's not what we're doing here. The Bible is explicitly telling us here that our singing is not just for us, and it's not just addressed to God, it is for our brothers and sisters. It's addressed to one another. Colossians 3 says we teach each other when we sing uh, in our songs. And so we should not just judge our Sunday mornings by what helps us individually connect with God. We should be seeking, we are commanded to, by God here also to address each other when we sing. Again, your singing is not just for you. It's not just for God. It is also for your brothers and sisters. This is a means of being filled by the Spirit when we address each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You are teaching and encouraging your brothers and sisters when you sing here on Sundays. When I come in here on Sundays and I see someone who's just gotten an unfavorable diagnosis or has just been punched in the gut by life lately, 
passionately singing, great is thy faithfulness. And I'm stirred up to, in my faith to trust in God and to know that he's enough no matter what might be happening in my life. When you have struggled with, with assurance of your salvation all week and have given yourself over to sin again and then you come in on Sunday and hear uh, hundreds of people belt out, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Or when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. When you come in and you hear hundreds of people belting that out, so often you are stirred up in your faith and reminded, yes, the gospel's true. Jesus is mine. Jesus really has saved me. He really has forgiven me. And so I want to encourage you, even when a song is not your favorite, you can serve your brothers and sisters here by singing and addressing them in song. I also want to encourage you, look around at others when we sing. Listen to others sing on Sundays. We're meant to see and hear each other so that we can encourage one another in song. The congregation's voice, you, you all are the best instrument that we have, and we need to hear it. So I want to encourage you, play your part in uh, helping your brothers and sisters and encouraging your brothers and sisters in song. Second, he says we should seek to be filled by the Spirit by singing and making melody to the Lord uh, with our hearts, um, thankfully not with our voices, with our hearts, um, and, which means our singing should also be a way we worship God. We don't just go through the motions, we also address our song to God. It's a, a way we worship Him, and when He says with our hearts, that means that our whole being is engaged, our mind, our will, our emotions, our desires. We are singing to God with all that we are and seeking to worship Him through song. Third, we seek to be filled by the Spirit by giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of Jesus. This means a general posture of thankfulness. We're always thankful for the gift of salvation, that God's brought us back to Himself, that we have a relationship with Him. We're actively, throughout our day, thanking Him for saving us and leading us and guiding us and caring for us. And fourth, we seek to be filled by the Spirit by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, there are specific angles that submission is going to take in different relationships, husbands and wives, for example, and we'll talk about that next week. And Paul's not erasing those distinctions here, but what he is calling for here is a church body where everybody is denying themselves and seeking to honor others as more important than themselves. All of us are called to submit to others by seeking, their own, by seeking their good above your own. And you know that the Spirit is exercising more influence and rule and control in your life when you're growing and privileging the concerns of others here above yourself. And Paul says we do this out of reverence for Christ. That means we submit to one another here in the church and we privilege the good of one another here in the church because Jesus is is weighty to us because Jesus and what he says is most important in our lives. We don't take his commands as options. 
something we'll get around to if we feel like it. No, we obey because we have reverence for Christ. That's what it means to walk in wisdom. It means to be filled by the Spirit, seeking to use every moment of our lives to honor and obey and worship and follow Jesus. And this is the script that God has given us for the play. He's cast us. He's given us a part, and he's given us our lines. This is what it means and what it looks like to live the Christian life. We live out this new life that Jesus has created in us by walking in love, by walking in light, and by walking in wisdom. Let's pray that God would make that true in our lives. God, thank you for your word. Thank you again that you don't leave us in the dark about what it looks like to follow you. God, would you help us? Would you help us to walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us? Would you help us to walk as children of light because we are now light in you. You've made us light. So help us to not go back to the darkness, to not become partners with the darkness. God, help us to, when inevitably we do, uh, fall back into darkness and seek to hide our sin um, from you, from others, and often even from ourselves. Would you give brothers and sisters here in the church who can speak into that and and drag that into the light and bring us back into the light. God, would you help us to walk in wisdom? Would you help us to believe that you've redeemed us from wasting our lives on sinful pursuits and we're freed up to just live for you now? God, would you help us to be filled by the Spirit, to give the Spirit power and rule and influence and control in our lives? God, help us to be yielded to his influence, to put ourselves under his influence. Help us as we seek to do these things, as we seek to address one another in song, as we seek to sing and make melody to you with our hearts, as we give thanks to you always for everything. And God, as we submit to one another because you matter most in our lives, give us grace to do that. Would, you, would your grace in our lives be powerful, not just forgiveness from our sins, but power to change. God, help us as we walk in that this week. I pray that you would. In your name, amen.